on October 1st, 1529, a meeting was convened in Marburg, Germany for the purpose of clarifying some of the issues regarding the Lord's Table among the reformers of both Germany and Switzerland. The foremost German reformer present was, of course, Martin Luther. The Swiss reformer present was Ulrich Zwingli. Both sides had plenty of surrogates with them, and as you'll see from what I tell you in just a few moments, that's a pretty good thing. Luther was arguing during this meeting that the elements, meaning the bread and the cup, or the wine, didn't just represent the person of Christ or the work of Christ, but that Jesus was actually present in the elements. Zwingli was arguing for a memorial view, which, by the way, is the view that we hold. That is that the bread represents Jesus Christ's body. The cup represents the work that he had done. I attended a lecture by a Lutheran scholar, a very fine scholar, several years back, whose area of expertise was the Marburg debate. And he declared, uh, he, he described to us rather at one point in the meeting uh, where he got particularly contentious. Now remember they're arguing over the Lord's Supper, something that's supposed to bring us all together. But it, you had Zwingli at one end of the table who was a fairly mild-mannered person. Luther at the other end of the table who was not a fairly mild-mannered person, to put it mildly. And they had uh, quite a few people in between. The debate got rather contentious and in the middle of the debate Luther gets up from where he was sitting walks around the end of the table for the sole purpose of punching Zwingli out, knocking him clean out. Ulrich was not a fighter, although interestingly enough, he died at 42 in battle. He didn't make it past that. But on a personal level, Zwingli wasn't a fighter. Fortunately, all the men in between got in front of Luther and stopped him and set him back down. It's one of the classic aspects of Reformation Christianity that we don't talk about a lot. <laughs> the debate only lasted about four days because they just couldn't agree especially on the, issue, on the primary issue, but there were some things that they agreed upon. It's interesting that across the spectrum in Christianity, whether it's a Roman Catholic view or the Reformed view or the Lutheran view or the Zwinglian view, the memorial view that we hold, there are some things that all of us hold together. And I think that's something that I'd like to emphasize as we get started. The first is that the Lord's table, the Lord's supper was established by Jesus himself on the night before he was crucified with only believers in the room. Judas had already departed. The Lord's Supper was something that Jesus commanded us to do. He commanded the rep repetition of the Lord's Supper, keep on doing this in remembrance of me. It wasn't just to be done once. That ritual that he instituted was to be done regularly. The Lord's Supper proclaims in some way the death of Christ. We recognize the death of Christ. When we participate in the Lord's Supper in a few moments, when we celebrate that, we are all recognizing Jesus' death and our commonality, our common bond in Jesus Christ that's a result of our accepting the benefits of his death. And finally, the Lord's Supper imparts some type of spiritual benefit to the participant. Now granted, if you grew up, say, in a Roman Catholic culture, it may be a, a little different benefit than if you grew up, in a, grew up in a Protestant culture. But all across the spectrum, we recognize that the Lord's Table does impart some sort of spiritual benefit to the participant. But they concluded this meeting, and the difference that they had in the beginning was the same one that they had at the end. They said, at present we are not agreed as to whether the true body and blood of Christ are bodily present in the bread and the wine. And unfortunately that distinction comes down to us even today. It's not my intention in this sermon to cover the historical interpretation and understanding of the Lord's table. But I bring these things up to demonstrate 
that the understanding, our understanding and application of the Lord's table has sometimes led to contentious behavior on the part of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it has unnecessarily led to disunity in the church, in the body of Christ. And this disunity didn't start with the Protestant Reformation. This disunity goes all the way back into the first century. The problem in the first century, and particularly in first century Corinth, wasn't so sophisticated as that which was being debated at Marburg. It wasn't over the interpretation of the meaning of the elements back then. It was over the appropriate attitude that one had when one participated in the communion service in the first place. It's here in our passage today in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, that Paul comes down hard on the Corinthians. He comes down as hard here as he does anywhere in this letter, and he comes down hard on them several times in this letter. But you can tell here he's going to get quite emotional. He's very passionate about what they're doing and that the fact that the way they're participating in communion is very, very wrong. And it's Paul's job as an apostle, a man who loves them, a man who is likely responsible for the founding of that church, or at least as he's already told us in, in a previous passage, he considers himself their spiritual father. He led many of them to Christ, or they were led by people who he had led to Christ. This is a very personal thing for Paul, and he's going to come down real hard on them. But you know what? Sometimes we have to come down hard because we love somebody. It would be an inappropriate reaction for him to just softly enter into this, and he doesn't do it. So he's going to come down as hard here as anywhere in the epistle. And you can tell by the words that he writes, he is steamed as he writes them. Just look at the first verse. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Now that's a heck of a way to begin the paragraph. I don't praise you, because when you come together, this is your assembly. In other words, when you meet on Sunday morning, it would almost have been better had you not come at all. Now that's a pretty strong way for him to start this chewing that he's going to give to them. He's moved on from his discussion of the creative order that he had had in the previous paragraph and its manifestation in the church and how it was to be manifested and not, manifested and not obliterated. He's moved on from that. He, he was firm there, but he wasn't passionate, upset there like he is here. If this was a modern epistle, Paul would have been warning them that a church split was coming. That's how serious this is. Back then, there were no other churches to go to. There was just one church, principally. So if you had a problem in that church, you needed to work it out. In some ways, that might have been more healthy. In the Bible Belt, we have many, many churches to choose from in Dallas, Texas, and in Houston, Texas. But go to Preston City, Connecticut, or go up to Oregon, or go to Washington State. And when people have trouble in a church, they have to work that problem out, because there are not a lot of other churches that people can go to. And one of my friends that lives in Boston, Massachusetts... Drives 25 miles each way, and that's the only church. It's not, it's not that that's the best one. That's really the only one that he has found that will teach the Word of God at all. So when they have a problem in that church, they have to work it out. They can't have a split. But so many times in our churches today, there are so many, there's so many choices out there. If you don't like one thing in a church, instead of sitting down and talking to somebody, about well, I'm out of here. I'm gone. But it wasn't that way back then. And so Paul's telling them, we're going to have to work this out because... The modern-day equivalent would have been a church split. They had a very serious problem in their worship. The church was so divided 
that when they came together in their assembly on Sunday morning, the result was worse than if they had not met at all. Stop and let that sink in. That's pretty bad. It would have been better if you'd have just stayed home. Wow. Now that's a heck of a way to start the paragraph. But he goes on. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. To paraphrase that, based upon what I know about you, that's not impossible for me to believe that there would be divisions among you. For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may become evident among you. Jesus Christ, as he walked this earth, was the perfect model for humility and selflessness. He is our model. The Corinthian church, on the other hand, was a perfect model of selfishness, polar opposite of their Lord. There's something seriously wrong with that picture. When our Lord is humble and when he is selfless and we, when we find ourselves prideful and selfish, we've got to know right away there's a problem there. Disunity, we might just let that run off the ends of our tongue like it's no big deal in a church. The Apostle Paul thought it was one of the biggest deals in a church, when a church has disunity. And that was the problem here in Corinth. Disunity, pride, and selfishness will destroy a local church. That's one of the issues that Paul introduced all the way back into chapter 1, wasn't it? And now we see that there's more to it than what Paul addressed at the time. Remember back then it was, who had baptized me? I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos. I prefer this guy, I prefer that guy. But now we find out it was even more serious than that. Because the issue that's at hand with regard to the disunity by the time we get to chapter 11 is an aspect of worship that's extremely serious and extremely solemn, and it's the Lord's table. Their disunity was being manifested and how they were celebrating the Lord's table. That's a double whammy. There's two huge problems there, and Paul is really upset about it. When he says in verse 19, for there must be factions among you, he's probably using a little bit of irony. Some people call this sanctified sarcasm. It could be that, or he may be wistfully saying that the ugly behavior on the part of some, at the very least, the least it'll do is, is, is to demonstrate the beautiful behavior on the part of others. But he's being a little bit ironic here. He's not at all happy about what's going on. I want to make one observation here, one quick observation. That Paul is equating in this portion of chapter 11 the assembly that took place on the first day of the week, which was Sunday morning, what we're doing right now. He equated the assembly itself with participation in the Lord's table. And that has led many to believe that in the very earliest times of the church, the Lord's table was celebrated every time they got together. Now, that wasn't necessarily the command of our Lord. That's a custom of the church. But when you hear people teach that, this is one of the places that they derive that opinion from. Because Paul does seem to say, you've got a problem in your worship, you've got a problem in your assembly, and that problem is the Lord's table. So it's not like they get by three weeks out of the four and they're doing fine. The disunity is every single time they come together. And Paul is going to say here, this has got to stop. So when, they, when we talk about the communion service being held every, t every time they met, this is descriptive and not necessarily prescriptive. But now it gets a little rough. Look at verses 20 through 22 with me. Therefore, when you meet together, 
it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. I, I warned you, Paul is passionate. He's emotional. He is angry. And that's righteous anger. But he's angry. And look what he's angry about. He's angry about the disunity in the body of Christ as it's being manifested in how they're celebrating the Lord's table. This is not good. The Lord's table was designed to be a memorial remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he was and what he did. And he's saying some of you guys are coming to this communion service and you're participating in something, but what you're participating in is not the Lord's table. You may be calling that. It may say that in the bulletin, but that's not what you're participating in. It's something entirely different because our Lord was humble and selfless. And you're coming together and you're arrogant and you're prideful and you're selfish. This is something that's totally unacceptable. Some of the people were participating in communion and they were drunk when they got there. Or the other possibility is because they, because they would have used real wine. There wouldn't have been any such thing as grape juice in the ancient world. There wasn't the refrigeration to keep it grape juice. But it's possible that they were consuming so much of the wine that they were becoming drunk during the communion service. We've said before, there's nothing wrong with drinking wine, but there's everything wrong with being, becoming drunk. And can you imagine something worse than becoming drunk in a communion service that is designed to help us to remember the person and the work of Jesus Christ? If Paul had any hair, he's supposed to have been bald. I don't know if that's true. But if he, if he had any hair, he'd have been pulling it out at this point. It's just terrible. It's very possible that some in Corinth were having a private communion service and a privileged celebration that was separated from the less privileged in the church. In this particular theory, the division might have been economic as much as anything else. Verse 20 again, therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Savior. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry and other is drunk. There were certain people that were being excluded from the bread. Again, totally unacceptable. Paul is clearly emotional here. This is righteous anger that he's portraying. He's not trying to be politically correct. He's not trying to win their favor. He's not trying to be the apostle of the month. He's not trying to get them to say, you know what, I like that Paul guy a lot better than I like that Peter guy. That's not on his mind right here. Correction's on his mind. And every now and then that has to happen. He's not trying to keep his job. He's trying to do his job as unto the Lord. And if there's a problem, it's his job to point it out. In a way, this reminds me, I wonder if it reminds you of something that happened in our Lord's ministry. There was a time when our Lord got really upset too. The meek, mild Jesus of the first advent gave us a glimpse of the conquering Messiah of the second advent. Twice, actually. Once in the beginning of his public ministry and once at the end. When he came through and he saw what the, what the merchandisers had done to his father's temple. The temple that was designed to worship 
our Lord Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate form, Yahweh, the God of Israel, that was designed to worship God the Father, had been turned into a house of commerce. It was a whole racket that, that was going on back then. Annas is bizarre is what they called it. And Jesus became so upset that he came and threw over those heavy tables that held the money. And he threw those people out of his father's house. I think what we saw back then in the gospel record was just a glimpse of the second advent Jesus. Just a very small glimpse. I think there are going to be so many people that are going to be so surprised at the second advent. Because this idea that they have of Jesus is, is almost of some mind-numbed, doper, hippie guy that has long hair and is not very clean, not very shaven, that comes walking through the wilderness uh, kind of saying, hey, dude, that's not Jesus at all. You didn't read the gospel record. And by the way, that's one of the reasons I never cared for many of the films about Jesus that were produced a long time ago. More of the modern films are better. Uh, they, they don't show him that way. Jesus had a purpose for being here. The Gospel of Luke tells us exactly that he dedicated himself to go to Jerusalem and fulfill that purpose. He knew exactly what he was doing. But he was meek and mild in the first advent. He was reviled and he did not revile in return. He was spat upon and he did not respond. He was punched in the face, he was punched in the head, and he did not punch back. But in the second advent, he comes not as the meek and mild Savior of the world, but as the conquering hero of the world, the conquering Messiah. And I think when he turned over those money changers' tables, just God the Father in grace gave us just a glimpse of what it's going to be like at the second advent. And I think many people miss that about Jesus to their own detriment. Sometimes it has to be done. Jesus did it, and Paul does it here. If, the, if it was the equivalent, Paul would be turning over some tables. I've never had something this egregious happen in our worship service, and, and I hope you realize I, re, I respect you. I, I have seldom ever had to make corrections from the pulpit in our church. If there's something that needs to be corrected, I usually try to do it privately. But I remember one time, back in the very beginning of our, when we started worshiping, we met in an elementary school. There are a few of you here that were there back then. And we had one, one fellow in our church that was really worked with kids a lot. And he was just a great guy. And he brought about, about 20, 25 kids to the service that morning. It happened to be a communion service morning. Actually, it doubled the size of our congregation. There was only about 25 of us, and the 25 kids doubled it. We, we, we had to scramble to get some more communion cups. And I noticed as we were taking communion, the kids had not been informed about what communion was all about. I made the wrong assumption. I, I thought that the person that brought him had kind of told him a little bit about it. I mentioned the things that I always do, but I didn't, I didn't mention enough, apparently. And during the communion service, they were hooting and hollering and cutting up and talking and, and joking. And, and if, you, if you can picture, it would have been just a very small group of people in a small room. It, you couldn't overlook it. And I had to come down hard on them, really hard, because that's not the way that you participate in communion. Then afterwards... There were communion cups left over, and I saw them all back there just drinking the, the cups and throwing the things away. And I told them, that's never going to happen again. Love to have you here. Love to have you here. But that will never happen again because this is representative of the death our, our Lord died, and this is what you're doing with it. I tried to make it a teaching moment. I think a few of the kids did come back because they got it, but sometimes there are teaching moments where you've got to stop saying, no, 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 that's not right. What we're celebrating here today is the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't disrespect that. In Christianity today, 
there are a lot of areas where we can have differences with regard to philosophy of ministry, style of worship, things like that. There are different ways that we can sing songs or praise choruses. Different people have different attitudes about that. And, and, and I'm, I'm fine with the differences in, in, in those types of things. People have different styles in their preaching. People have different types of dress that they may wear to a particular service. But one thing I don't like to see messed with is the communion service. I don't like to see so-called contemporary adaptations of communion with dance and with other things. Our Lord prescribed how this was to be done. See, in the Old Testament, it was easy for them to worship. Everything was very strictly prescribed. In the New Testament, it's different because we're supposed to be grown-up adults. and We're supposed to be able to figure out the best way to do it. And in different cultures, there are different, different ways. In, in Viva la Difference, I mean, that's, that's a wonderful thing. I'm glad for the difference in different cultural manifestations of worship. But there's one place that we ought not to mess with it. And that's in the Lord's table. Our Lord prescribed specifically how it was to be done. And if you think about the first participation, the first celebration of the Lord's table, think about when it was done. The night before he was crucified. That was a solemn moment. And so we participate in communion in a solemn way because it's a solemn event. Shall I praise you? Paul asks rhetorically. No way. No way, not in this. Now, I'm all for leading with encouragement. I think that's a great way to raise your kids. If you're a football coach, I love, I love the ones that, that are praising the kids and encouraging them along. I don't particularly care for the football coaches that do nothing but complain to their players that every time they come off the field that they're taking they're shaking them and they're yelling at them. I think that should take place in practice. Once the game's going, I'm for, hey, listen, let's get it done. I'm all for praise and encouragement. Paul probably was too. Not here, though. We can't do it here. This is where we've got to draw the line. This is one of those places where no flexibilities can exist. This is an essential of the Christian faith. There is never, ever an appropriate time to be prideful, selfish, and display disunity in worship. Never. Now, again, I want you to see what he's done. He started off by telling them he doesn't care for their worship. Then the specific aspect of their worship that he doesn't care for, the way they're participating, is the Lord's table. But for him, it's one big package. This disunity is just being manifested in how they're celebrating communion. They weren't waiting for each other. They weren't courteous. There's a reason why we make the statement, it's our custom for each one to hold the bread until all have been served. It's because of this passage right here. And it wasn't these little pieces of bread that we have that we buy from the Lifeway Christian bookstore. It was, it was actual bread, and they would be breaking off a piece and there were people either, there were people in the front of the line that were breaking off all of it and consuming it because they were hungry, they were gluttonous, and the people in the back didn't get anything. Remember in those days, the best seats were the ones in the front, and the worst seats were the ones in the back. It was either something like that, or some New Testament scholars have speculated that they were actually having two different communions. One was in one room, and the, and the people in one room got all the bread and all the wine, and the people in the other room were just left out because they didn't have the financial resources to be invited into that other room. Either way... There's disunity in the church at Corinth. Can you imagine how hypocritical it would be for someone, say, in today's culture to proudly proclaim that they would never, ever be caught dead singing a praise chorus while at the same time they're involved in a conspiracy to split a church? Can you imagine the hypocrisy there? Think of what Jesus is saying about that. He probably doesn't have any problem with the praise chorus, frankly. But he's got a big problem 
with the disunity in the church. Can you imagine how hypocritical one would be to say that they would never attend a church that utilized a piano in worship, while at the same time they're promoting disunity in their own? These things don't go together. In case you hadn't picked it up, this is serious. It's a very serious thing. There were some in Corinth who thought that they were doing just fine with respect to their spiritual lives. But they were just one step ahead of being taken out with the sin unto death. That's why he's almost screaming at them to get their attention. It's like they're on the edge of the cliff and they're playing around. And it's not funny. When I was in Switzerland on my very first trip, Cindy and I went to a place called Interlaken. Kids were young. They were finally old enough that they could stay with my folks. And in Switzerland, it's different than the United States. They don't really believe in too many rails around the edges of cliffs. And I, there was, Cindy was standing next to a cliff holding two flowers that you weren't supposed to pick. And I thought it was funny because there was a sign right behind her that said, don't pick the flowers. So I was trying to get a sign with her and the flowers in it <laughs> at the same time because she was holding them up. I thought it would be a funny joke. There was also a cliff behind her, and I thought she knew it. And so I said, why don't you step back just a little bit? So she stepped back, and I said, I'll step back just a little bit more. I thought she was playing with me. She wasn't. She didn't know there was a cliff back there. She wasn't paying attention. And so she stepped back again, and finally I said, whoa, wait, wait. I'm just joking. Stop right where you are. Don't go any further. And I went and got her hand. I said, let's walk right back over here. And I had to scream at her, though, because she thought I was serious. I'll just back up a little bit more, back up a little bit more, because I wanted her standing right next to the sign. The Swiss had put the sign right next to the edge of the cliff. It makes my heart race even now just thinking about it. And that was 25, 27 years ago, something like that. But I had to holler out because she was in danger. It's no joke. And that's what Paul's doing here. He said, you guys are right on the edge of the cliff, and this is no joke. Some of you are about to be taken out in what John calls the sentence that leads to death. You guys are about to die. God is going to discipline you so harshly that death is one of the possibilities I need to get your attention. We often look at this passage and we assume that the punishment that is the sin that leads to death that Paul's going to refer to is just for coming to the communion service drunk. Well, that's a part of it, to be sure. But the broader context, and I don't want you to miss this this morning, the broader context is the disunity that promoted and manifested itself in the way they were celebrating communion. In verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus and the night that which he was betrayed took bread. You, you see that phrase, the night in which he was betrayed. Paul is letting us know that this was a solemn occasion to begin with. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this is the cup, or this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Since the tradition of the Lord's table is at the center of the problem, Paul takes just a moment and reminds the Corinthians of the origin of this ritual. When Paul says that he received it from the Lord... He's likely referring to Jesus being the originator of the tradition. It's possible, although in my view it's by no means certain, that the Synoptic Gospels hadn't been written by the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. 
So the ritual of the Lord's table had probably come down through an oral tradition. Now, that doesn't make it less sure. We have oral traditions that run through the early part of the church. There's an unbroken chain of eyewitnesses to the oral tradition. Two elements are introduced, the bread and the cup. The bread being representative of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's body, the perfection that was offered up for us. The cup is representative of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. When we see the term blood of Christ, we need to realize it's a pregnant verbal symbol for the entirety of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. So you have these two very important elements. You have the bread that's representative of the sacrifice itself. This is who was sacrificed for you, God's eternal Son. This is a, the highest possible sacrifice that could ever be made. And then what He did for you, which is represented by the term the blood of Christ, this, the death that He died was, was no simple thing. It was a brutal death that he died. Then on top of the brutality of crucifixion itself, there's the fact that the father poured out his wrath upon his son who was carrying our sins. The death of Christ on the cross ratified the new covenant of Jeremiah chapter 31. But the new covenant won't actually be inaugurated until the second advent of Jesus Christ. We're going to discuss that later in a future context. But when he says that this is the new covenant in my blood... Covenants had to be ratified by blood. So the work of Christ on the cross ratified the new covenant that's going to be inaugurated at a later point. The new covenant of Jeremiah 31. We're not under the new covenant right now. All you have to do is read it and see that we're not. In his death, Jesus was obedient to the Father. Our participation in this remembrance of his death reminds us of the price that was paid for our salvation and motivates us toward loving obedience to the one who sought us and saved us and keeps us by his grace every single moment we're alive on this earth. And then finally, Paul says in verses 27 through 34, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner or an inappropriate manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that he may not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. When Paul says that those who participate in communion do so in an unworthy manner, that they are guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, he's in essence saying that they have removed their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and align themselves with those who actually crucified him. The New Testament scholar David Garland explains, those whose behavior at the Lord's Supper does not conform to what his death entails effectively shift sides. They leave the Lord's side and align themselves 
with the ruler of this present age who crucified the Lord. This explains how they make themselves so vulnerable to God's judgment. Now, these are believers. And they're taking themselves, because of the way that they're participating in disunity, and it's manifesting itself in the Lord's table, they're effectively switching sides. They're not remembering the Lord's death. Paul says, in effect, you're taking up sides with the people that crucified him here. Now you see why the judgment might be so severe, why the sin unto death might be a part of this package. Now, verses 28 and 29 do express God's gracious provision for recovery from this kind of thing. The preventative, we're to examine ourselves before we participate in this or any other aspect of worship. Among other things, we might rightly ask ourselves, just where am I with respect to my life before God? Where do I stand right now? What's my motivation for being here? In context, have I been engaging in divisive behavior in the church? Am I showing disrespect to others in the church by, by emphasizing economic, racial, or any other distinction that shouldn't be in the body of Christ? Am I prideful? Am I selfish? Now, we all have to ask ourselves our own questions. But these are certainly some we might ought to start with, at least in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is where our post-salvation confession of sin comes into play. If the way that we examine ourselves reveals something that needs to be confessed, that's the time to do it. Now, you can see that self-examination should take place every time before we go to our Lord in confession. Otherwise, how would we know what to confess? But if we'll examine ourselves, and we need to do that regularly, ask ourselves these questions. Have I, have I gone wrong somewhere this morning, Lord? When you think about it, and if so, well, yeah, I did. I did this, and I did this, then you need to sit down and confess it immediately. And if we do that every day, well, all the more should we do it when it comes to participating in the Lord's table. If our self-examination reveals anything that falls short of God's holy standard, we should immediately recognize it, acknowledge it before God. And as verse 31 states, if we judge ourselves, we won't be judged. We're not going to be getting into this sin unto death thing. Given what verse 30 reveals, our motivation to self-examine, confess, and repent should be quite high. Listen to verse 30 again. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Now, he's not saying that every time someone is weak and sick, or sometimes someone die, that's, sleep is a metaphor that Paul uses for death. It doesn't mean that they are sinful. There are other reasons why people are missing this morning. So don't look around. You try to figure out who's not here and figure out who's, in, who's going to, under some sort of divine discipline. Some churches do that. That's not the way it is. That's not reality. There are other reasons why people get sick. But this is one reason. Sometimes sickness is a manifestation of divine discipline. And when he says sometimes people sleep, this is a reference to, I believe, the same thing that John talks about at the end of his first epistle when he says that there is a sin that leads to death. And I, I hope you're catching this. The root sin here is disunity. And the disunity is being manifested in how they're participating in communion. And Paul's saying that for this reason, there are people that are among you that are sick, sickly, weak, and some of you have even died. Now, Paul is assuming that they know who he's talking about. You've got to be careful with that. Just because someone's dying and they're dying a difficult death, don't just assume they're dying the sin that leads to death. That's been done before. It's not a kind thing. But these people in Corinth must have known some of these people that were coming drunk and had dropped dead. 
Or these people that were eat, being gluttonous and eating all the bread before the others had an opportunity and had dropped dead. So their ears would have perked up when he said this. That's the reason why those guys died, Paul would say. That's the reason he had his heart attack and dropped dead after the service that day. That's why. Now, again, not every heart attack is a result of this, please. But there's a specific context here where Paul's saying, you know those folks over there? You wonder why they died? This is why they died. Do I have your attention now, Paul would say. Sickness, weakness, and even death are possible punishments for those who promote factions and disunity in the church, for those who disrespect the death that our Lord died on their behalf as they totally abuse the ritual. God's discipline of his children is ultimately for the child's benefit, even in the case of the sin that leads to death. Rather than leave one here to continue to disobey and to walk out of fellowship with God, God sometimes just takes that child home. That's enough. So Paul concludes here, let's get it right. Let's do this right, my friends. Not only should the specific behavior be corrected, but the attitude of arrogance and divisiveness has to go as well. <laughs> 